This is Including You, the new series from Lead at Any Level. Including You features stories from chief diversity officers and other executives who are creating inclusive cultures in their organizations. Our goal is to show what's working in companies just like yours, to give you the tools you need to keep pushing for progress in your own workplace. We want to create belonging and opportunity for everyone, including you. And now here's your host, Amy C. Wanninger. Welcome back to Including You. I'm your host, Amy C. Wanninger, the Inclusion Catalyst. My guest today is Dr. Randall Pinkett. He is the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of BCT Partners, which is on a mission to harness the power of diversity, insights, and innovation to transform lives, accelerate equity, and create lasting change. BCT Partners is a global research training and data analytics firm. But the way I met Dr. Pinkett is through his book, Data Driven DEI. This book is incredible for practitioners, for people who work inside organizations, and people who consult to organizations. There is so much great information in here. Dr. Pinkett, welcome to the show. Thank you, Amy, for the invitation and for the opportunity to be a part of the show. I'm excited to be here. I am excited to talk to you because what I want people to know about your book, first and foremost, is this is incredibly in-depth. It's very well-researched. It is incredibly tiny font <laughs> and packed with information, but I don't want that to scare anybody off because it is very readable. It is very insightful, and it is, it's very inspirational in that when you read this, you can see yourself doing the work step-by-step, just as you've outlined it. Mm. And so I want to thank you for giving us something that's so rich and so accessible at the same time. Thank you, Amy. I appreciate that. And this was truly a labor of love. It took significantly longer than I had anticipated for some of the reasons that you cited. I wanted to make sure readers had everything that they needed to walk through a process. It's a five-step process. It's laid out visually and literally with the letter I, and it is lots of research that went behind it so that they have the scaffolding without having to do that research themselves. Yes. And you cite so many tools that people can rely on in doing this work. It's not use my product or use this thing. It's here's five options for this kind of data collection. Here are five options for this kind of reporting. Here are six options for getting to the heart of X, Y, and Z. So you've really done all of that kind of cultivation for us without making the decisions for us. But before we get into all of that, I want to talk about why did you decide that this book was necessary? Why write this book at this time? So the original vision was not this book. I had produced a video after George Floyd's murder entitled The Seven Myths of Racial Equity, Candid Conversations with a Black Businessman. That was the subtitle. And a, an acquisitions editor at my publisher, Wiley, Mike Campbell, reached out and said, we want to do a book on that topic. And we, your topic. And I said, wonderful. So we got into these discussions, Mike and I, we had some really great dialogue. And as he's learning more about my background, he's you got to PhD from MIT? I'm like, yeah, Mike. He's like, you got four degrees in computer science? I'm like, yeah, Mike. It's like your firm is doing DEI and machine learning and quantitative 
and qualitative research and AI and data analytics. I'm like, yeah, he's like, I got a second idea for you. <laughs> I said, what, Mike? And he says to me, data-driven DEI. I said, I love it. So we pivoted completely out of the seven myths of racial equity and leaned into data-driven DEI. And of course, we looked out into the marketplace. There was nothing out there on this topic. Lots of articles and discussions, but there is no authoritative resource that walks you through how to use data to drive every step of the DEI life cycle. And that's what data-driven DEI was designed to be. The last gift Mike gave me was this book should not be geared just for DEI leaders and champions and executives. It should be geared toward anyone, any person or organization who wants data to drive their DEI journey. This book is for them. I'm going to I'm going to hypothesize for just a moment that this book is very popular in three spaces in particular. And you tell me if I'm wrong, healthcare, technology, (laughs) and financial services. (laughs) You are so correct. Uh, And might I say, those are also the three industries where I, as a trainer facilitator, have the greatest difficulty facilitating sessions because they're all data-driven industries. And if I'm not giving them the numbers, the quantitative, the qualitative, the evidence, they're like, please, (laughs) don't even bother coming in the room. (laughs) So yes, you are correct, Amy. The last one I would add is academia because they too are evidence-based and scientifically methodologically oriented. So I have difficulty with them as well. (laughs) So the reason I say that is most of my clients are in those three industries. And the reason they like me is because I go in with the references to like Marvel and The Hobbit. And a lot of times when they bring me in, it's because I can give them data to work with. Mm -hmm. And so as I was reading, I can see so many of the people that I work with really loving this book for that reason, because it is, it's the people that are drawn to those fields are usually very if then else kinds of people. They try not to be everyone's driven by emotion, but they don't like to think that they are. And so this is a way for them to really embrace this without it feeling touchy-feely the way a lot of people think of DEI. So anyway, I'm sorry. I mean, to digress from this, I was just like, I have all these questions for you that are selfish in nature because I'm just so curious about it. But so let me ask you then this, can you talk just a little bit about the framework, the five eyes, Mm -hmm. and why each is so critical to this work? I'm happy to. So there's a a step zero before we get into the five steps. That step zero is DEI incentives. And it is a foundational, introspective, self-reflective step that says, why does DEI matter to you in the first place? Is it intrinsic because of your upbringing, your religious values? Is it extrinsic because your performance evaluation has DEI in it? Regardless of whether it's extrinsic or intrinsic, you got to clarify why this matters because it gives you direction to enter the five-step cycle. Step one, DEI inventory. Conduct an assessment. To know where you're going, you have to know where you are. Step two, DEI imperatives. Where do you want to go? And how do we assign measurable goals to your objectives to know that you arrive there? Step three, is one of my favorites, DEI insights. And it says, before you decide what you're going to do, 
Look to best practices, promising practices, proven practices of what worked for someone else or some other organization that might work for you. Step four, DEI initiatives. Now, interestingly, only at step four do you finally decide what you're going to do. All that work to decide your strategies and your measures to know you're making progress. Said differently, DEI initiatives, which was objectives and goals, is about outcomes, final results, such as improved culture, inclusive behaviors. Step four, DEI initiatives is about strategies and measures, and that's about outputs. Not outcomes, but outputs. An output is I went to a training, I read a book, I watched a video, I had a candid conversation. That's a output that can get you to the outcome, but let's not confuse the two. Step five, DEI impact. How do we measure our results? How do we know that we're achieving the outcomes that we set out to accomplish? And now how do we create a continuous learning loop that leads us right back to step one, DEI inventory, where I re-administer my assessment to know where am I with culture, climate, behavior, et cetera, and the cycle continues on and on. That's data-driven DEI. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, because too many organizations start and end with initiatives and <laughs> never get to impact as a result. <laughs> That's so true. That's so true. And it is symbolic, metaphoric, and instructive that you only get to that after three, arguably four preceding steps. Then you figure out, okay, what are we going to do? And so to your point, Amy, so many people leapfrog over all of those foundational essential steps. And then they ask the question, why is it not working? Or they don't even ask the question and they just scrap it. And they say, that didn't work for us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they abandon it and move on. And mm -hmm. If people take nothing else away from this conversation today, I want them to hear that initiatives is step four and at best step five, not <laughs> step one and done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As somebody said to me, what a wonder, what an amazing idea that before I decide what to do, I should do some groundwork before it. Epiphany. <laughs> that is exactly true. And the thing is, this is what we do in every other aspect of our businesses. That's this right. is how we do our financials. It's how we do our marketing. It's how we do our sales. It's how we manage our projects. It's how we do performance evaluation. It's how we do, do compensation structure and talent acquisition and talent management. But for some reason in DEI, we just think, oh, we'll just we'll do an unconscious bias training on a Thursday and everybody will be fine. And everything will change because we did a lunch and learn and it just doesn't happen that way. And then they blame the training or to your point, they don't even blame the training. They just scrap it because this is clearly a waste of our time, money, and resources. And I want to highlight that as well as something you said earlier, Amy, which I appreciated. So often DI is construed as soft or loosey goosey, or it can't be measured, or it's about these intangibles. It is not about these intangibles because to your point about how initiatives is four at best five, coupling that with the data-driven approach enables us to quantify and qualify what are we doing? Where are we trying to go? How do we benchmark against best practices? And how do we know that we've arrived where we intended to be? All of that is part and parcel of what you said earlier. And it's not about getting the badge the we're a wonderful place to be employed badge it's not about that 
Right. It's about really digging in and seeing <laughs> what are we doing well that we need to continue? What are we not doing that we need to start? Who is being left out right now that we need to include? And right. how do we bridge those gaps so we have fewer gaps and smaller gaps the next time we take this assessment? Well said, said. No. And if you're in it for the pages that you'll include in your annual report and the talking points from the, the, the state of the organization, then you're in it for the wrong reasons. Um, it has to be about, as you said very eloquently, how do we make certain that people are experiencing our organization in a way that is inclusive, they feel like they belong, and they're being able to bring and be their best self. And then as an organization, we can bring and be our best self. Because people can only do their best work if they can show up fully. You don't get innovation if people are afraid. You don't hear about the problems before they become a catastrophe That's if right. people are afraid to speak up. That's you right. don't you don't have people going out on a limb for you, doing the discretionary effort that mm-hmm. gets you from good to great. There are so many pieces that people will hold back. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, and I know we're getting off the topic of the book just a little bit, but it's interesting to me that we used to hear all the time from leaders, I shouldn't have to thank people I give them a paycheck. I'm sure you've heard that (laughs) in your work. Why do I have to thank them? And then what happens? We have the pandemic. And now employers are saying, oh, people are quiet quitting and we can't have that because now they're not doing anything extra. Mm, And mm. how do you have it both ways where you're not going to give them anything extra like appreciation, recognition, opportunity, because their paycheck is sufficient for the job that they're doing, but you want them to do more of the job than they're getting paid for. Have it both ways. Can't. One of my colleagues, David Hunt, often says, while leaders are often worried about those who quit and leave, they should be worried about those who quit and stay, who are disengaged, feeling disempowered, and, and therefore are creating uh, disadvantages all throughout your culture. So you make a great point. If, if we are not attendant to these matters that people want to feel honored. They want to feel like their voices matter, like their contributions make a difference. And you think this is about a transaction and a paycheck, they will transact themselves someplace else. (laughs) And I will give you another dis. It creates dysfunction in the organization when that that happens. Because what happens is people, then they start jockeying for position. They start, you know, there becomes a lot of infighting and finger pointing and blaming And the work doesn't get done because there's so much drama and there's so much tension around it. But the beautiful thing about this is you don't have to wait to feel all of that Mm -hmm. because with your book, you can measure right now what's happening and then take all the steps to prevent it. So let's talk a little bit about what can be measured in, let's say in the imperatives phase of this process, because I think sometimes people think, okay, I can do a culture assessment. I can do the smile sheets at the end of the at the end of the training. Did everybody like the training? Which is the wrong thing to measure with diversity and inclusion training. Let's be clear about that. Um, but what are some of the kind of the measures and metrics that when you put them into the book, you thought, man, that's going to surprise some people? It's a good question. I, I think what surprised people is making clear a the difference between outcomes and outputs, which we discussed a moment ago but also the difference between disparities and inequities. So a disparity is a difference. So if doctors make 
a certain amount of money and nurses make a certain amount of money, that's a disparity, but it's expected. A disparity is, an ex- is almost an expected difference. An inequity is if I have two nurses with the same years of experience, same location, same job, same level, same tenure, and one is making more, the other was making less. An inequity implies something is unfair, something's wrong. I need to dig deeper into that. And I think we often confuse disparities with inequities. Uh, disparity is, is acceptable, all things considered. Inequity is not. And when we talk about the D, the E, and the I, for measuring the D, we know that's about representation. For measuring the I, we know that's about culture and climate and how people are experiencing it. But for the E, before George Floyd's murder, we talked mostly about DNI. Now we're talking about DEI. And I think we're still maturing what we mean by the E from a data-driven perspective. What we mean is identifying inequities, not disparities, but inequities, and closing the gap on those inequities, pay inequities, advancement inequities. The list goes on. But only if you have a data-driven approach can you even know what inequities exist. Like You can't approach that happenstance. You have to do the work. Absolutely. And all three of those components work together to improve one another as each improves. That's right. right? As you improve inclusion, you're going to improve diversity because people who feel included are going to bring their friends. We know that. Mm -hmm. If you improve inclusion and you improve diversity and you improve equity, it creates a virtuous cycle where more people feel more engaged, more people feel like they're being heard, they're being treated fairly, to use your word. And this is where organizations can make huge gains in terms of their investment into diversity, equity, and inclusion, Mm -hmm. because people then are feeling the results, not just seeing them in the annual report. That's right. That's exactly right. And some would argue that at the intersection of diversity, equity, and inclusion is belonging. Mm -hmm. That the gold standard is not employee engagement. That's Oh, that's the old school now. And all the arguments we made about employee engagement and productivity and discretionary effort, which you cited earlier, now it's diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging that says if you can help people or create an environment where people feel included and that they belong, now you're getting the innovation, you're getting the creativity, you're getting all the benefits of what people bring to the table. But you got to know and understand not on average where everybody is. You got to disaggregate that to know where each subgroup, subpopulation, location, level, identifiers. You got to slice and dice it to know what are all those differentiating experiences. Some would call it intersectional lens on your data. Only then can you develop strategies that are targeted to address those groups that are not having a good experience, that are not feeling included, don't feel like they belong. Yes. Because it's in the details, it's in the slices, it's in the pivot tables where you're going to see the disparities and then you'll know if you have inequities. That's right. That's exactly right. And I think people, one of the books I cite in the book is called The End of Average. And it's a deep dive on how averages obscure underlying realities. If I average my employee engagement score and say, I want to just improve it from six out of 10 to seven out of 10. Guess what? Some people are two (laughs) and some are a nine. I'm not worried about the nines or at least I should keep doing what I'm doing with the nines. 
but what about the twos? How do I, I need a focus group for them? I got to interview them. And there's my qualitative data. That's another form of data. So I can now develop strategies that I can get my twos to feel like nines. Yes. And I always tell companies that say, oh, we're doing great because we got the badge. <laughs> a lot of companies hide, I think, behind that badge. And I say, that's great. But if you've got a thousand employees and you've got an 80% engagement rate, but you've got 800 white employees and 20 or 200 black and brown employees, your 80% engagement rate may be entirely across race lines. Mm-hmm. And do you even know that? Are right. you digging in or did you say right. 80%? We're done. That's right. That's right. That's right. I call it the illusion of inclusion. (laughs) Because unless you dig in, you don't really know what's going on. And that's exactly, that's a data metaphorical equivalent of what their lived experience is. Meaning I don't feel like anyone recognizes that I'm a two. No one is really speaking to what's being done to get me off of being a two. And quite frankly, if I remain at a two, I'm going to go someplace else that makes me feel like a nine. Exactly. Or even a three, because that would be an improvement. <laughs> right, because right, right, that's got to be better than my two. And, and that's the reality. I think the pandemic really forced this issue of belonging because mm-hmm. people were feeling so disconnected for so long, yeah. not just from work, but from everything and everyone. Yeah. And so now there's almost this psychological need that needs to be filled with work mm-hmm. that probably was there before, but there wasn't quite such a spotlight on it. Until yeah. 2020, 2021, 2022. Would you I agree, agree with that? I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, people have called it the great resignation, but I call it the great reprioritization. I think the pandemic brought to a crossroads what were and should be deeper, more fundamental questions that we wrestle with about our about meaning, about purpose, about purposefulness, and how the intersection of work life and home life. I don't want to say collided, although I'm sure for some parents it probably felt like it collided, but they the, the lines became much more blurry. Like I'm getting to know your cat, your dog, your kids, and your UPS delivery guy <laughs> because they're all walking across my screen. And as a leader in an organization, the old school was, I don't really care about what's happening in your home life. I need to get the job done. But the new school post-pandemic world says, I have to understand what's happening in your home life because your home life very invariably is probably your work life. And if I don't, if I'm not attendant to those needs, those nuances, that reality, somebody else will be. Absolutely. And I think there's, we're in a labor crisis right now because for various reasons and the companies that are going to do well, I believe in the next five years, 10 years, the ones that are going to survive the right now, are the ones that have invested and continue to invest in diversity, equity, and inclusion and create that sense of belonging and create create an employee experience that really gets this right. Mm -hmm. Because it is so easy now that some of the geographic limitations around the workforce have dropped away. Not all of them, but a lot of them. A lot of, there's so much more information available to job seekers now than there used to be about what's really going on inside of a company. And the ones that are getting this right are going to win, plain Mm -hmm. and simple. Agreed, agreed. And I'll add even more on top of your your, your great point. When we have these conversations, or when I have these conversations with other leaders, the order of operations is often that, well, the organization cares about these matters, so we want our employees to care. And 
I think that's backwards. I think the message is actually people should care. And if people care, the organizational piece will take care of itself. In other words, we've done a great job of making what we call the business case for diversity, equity, inclusion, whether that's the quantitative or the qualitative case, determine how you will. I think we've done a far less effective job of making the personal case for DEI. Like, why should you care? Forget about whether the organization cares. Why should you care? And that's why data-driven DEI was written with people first and organization second. And I, and before I forget, I want your folks to go to datadrivendei.com because there is free templates, tools, resources, and case studies. And listen to me closely. I have case studies of people and organizations who have used a data-driven approach. Tell me where you will find a case study of a person who's used data to drive more diverse relationships, more inclusive behaviors, and more equitable practices. Well, I'll tell you where, datadrivendei.com. <laughs> I want to encourage everybody to go check this book out, buy it, put it on your desk, use it, talk about it. It's it, To me, it serves almost two purposes. One is it's an excellent step-by-step tutorial on how to get this work done. But it's also a great desk reference Mm -hmm. just in time when you need, I need an answer about X Mm -hmm. and it's organized in such a way that it's easy to find exactly what you're looking for. You can go right to that part. You can find the right tool that you need. You can go to datadrivendei.com and download the tool and download the case studies. And Dr. Pinkett, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I feel like I could talk to you for hours and <laughs> maybe over a drink sometime because this is clearly something that we're both incredibly passionate about. And I really hope that more organizations take to heart this measurable approach because when you measure it, it happens. That's right. That's right. Thank no, you so absolutely. much for being on the show. Thank you, Amy. A real honor, a real pri- privilege and a pleasure. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, follow Lead at any level on LinkedIn and YouTube. Then join us for Including You video simulcast every Thursday at noon Eastern. Including You can also be enjoyed each week as part of the Living Corporate Audio Podcast Series, available on all major podcast platforms. Learn more at living-corporate.com. Including You is brought to you in part by Lead at Any Level, a boutique training and consulting firm improving employee engagement and retention for companies that promote from within. Lead at Any Level. Leaders can be anywhere and should be everywhere. Learn more at leadatanylevel.com. Lead at Any Level and its logo are registered trademarks of Lead at Any Level LLC. The views and opinions of guests on our show do not necessarily reflect the positions of Lead at Any Level, Living Corporate, or the sponsors of Including You.